Turn to John chapter 4. A couple of weeks ago, we were looking at this passage of John chapter 4, and we got down to about verse 10. So this morning, I want to kind of wrap up this section by looking at verses 10 through 15, where Jesus uses this powerful metaphor for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It is this recognition. Jesus recognizes it, and he highlights it here. But the truth is, this is a truth that you that is universal. You can find it in a multiplicity of religions, and even in secular uh, uh, poets and authors and artists. We all recognize that it's very possible to be living and yet be dead. It, it's not just a Christian reality. It is the reality of the human condition that we are born to resist death before death, that we might taste life while we are living. And Jesus speaks to this reality. Right here in this story. Now we're going to go more deeply into this story because the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well doesn't end in this section. It will go on and we'll, 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 we'll go a little bit more deeply into it next week. But this is kind of the introduction of, of, of the deeper theological truths that he and this woman are going to be contemplating together. So we'll start in verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God... And who is saying to you, give me a drink? You would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Now, again, I love this story because this story is going to lead into this dialogue that happens between this woman and Jesus. And they are going to actually be discussing the larger questions of life. They will be speaking about it in specifically to their context and their, in their cultural and religious context. However, the themes that they're bringing up are universal themes that represent the ache of the human heart and the longing of the human soul. Regardless of religion, regardless of nationality, regardless of gender, and regardless of faith orientation, these questions rest upon all of our hearts. And in particular, they're going to have a discussion about the interchange between immorality and religion. And we'll look at that a little bit more next week. But if you're familiar with the story, you know they're going to talk about morality. They're going to have a discussion about um, her sexual partners and her husbands and her non-husbands. And that's going to lead to jumping quickly away from that to just having a theoretical religious discussion about where the best place to worship is and the best way to worship might be. Now, I highlight this for a couple of reasons. I hope that you will go into this story looking upon this woman with compassion. And, and uh, we have a baptism this morning, and so I have a time constraint, so I'm trying to be limited in, in my uh, distractions. But it's really important because we, we, we can be raised with this idea. Because fear is such a powerful motivation 
let me back up. In my experiences in Bible Belt Christianity, the primary motivator that I have been familiar with was fear to motivate both love uh, for God and an, an abhorrence for sin. I was, I, it was, we used primarily fear as the primary motivator for most of what we did. If that was not your experience, God bless you. I am happy for you. And uh, I'm not assuming that everyone has that experiences, uh, that experience, but I'm speaking from my own, but also from years worth of sitting with the broken hearted whose religion has failed them and heard similar stories. So, so we would often use fear as this motivation. And one of the odd assumptions that come up is those who don't follow Jesus, if they're living for sin, they're just people filled with lust and a slave to their impulses. This is reductive and simplistic thinking, and it will not do if you are going to be someone called to interact with the culture of brokenness around you. You've got to be more thoughtful than that. You've got to be more curious than that. Now, am I saying that there's never a time when we can be so bound in our addiction that really it seems that all that's driving us is the fire of our addiction or our lust or our rage or our anger or our violence? No, of course I know that happens. We can see examples of that happening. All I'm saying is that's not where people really, that's not where they jump to. Like if they're not following Jesus, then they're just angry lust buckets. That, that's not the reality. And, and in fact... I think it's important for us to recognize that both those who seek for the consolations of religion and those who seek, for, seek after the stimulations of the flesh through immorality are both looking for the same thing. They're just two different ways of trying to apprehend and answer this question, why do I feel so dead inside? Aren't I supposed to be more alive than this? And so it's interesting because they're going to talk about immorality and religion in the context of Jesus speaking about this living water. And what's happening in this conversation is something very similar that happens just one chapter previous in the conversation with Nicodemus. Remember where Jesus is speaking of spiritual realities and Nicodemus is confused because he's, he's thinking literally and in black and white terms. So when Jesus says you have to be born from above, and we, we spoke about in that sermon, that could have also been interpreted as born again, which is how obviously Nicodemus Interprets it, thus his confusion, and Jesus is trying to help them see. No, he's talking about not about, not about something literal, but something spiritual. He's talking about a larger spirituality, and he's trying to invite Nicodemus, engage Nicodemus in such a way that Nicodemus can come to that revelation. In the same way, he's having this discussion about living water. Now, Jesus clearly, as the as the story goes on, is using this. Hello. Now it's my alarm. Those of you who are going to be ready to be baptized this morning, you can go ahead and make your way toward the back of the auditorium at this time so that you can get prepared. Uh, I knew that I would forget that had it not been for that alarm. In the same way, this idea of living water, Jesus clearly is using it as a metaphor. And as we take the totality of the Gospels as well as the totality of the New Testament, uh, 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 quit pulling away from me. They're just walking down the hall. Up here, people, up here. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's, sorry, I distracted myself now. Uh, 
He is clearly using it as a metaphor for, for the reality of what it means to encounter the living Christ. And he's going to say some specific things, particularly that this is an inward reality. And he's probably pointing to, as a metaphor, the reality of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit that will be given to us to indwell us and to guide us and to empower us into a life of faithfulness to Jesus. But when she hears this, she's standing at this well. And what she's hearing when he says living water is likely there's actually a spring nearby because that's what they would have thought of as living water is a flowing stream which is why she gets a little offended and says are you better than Jacob I mean if there was a stream nearby he wouldn't have dug the dumb well but it doesn't matter whether you get the water from the well or spring you don't even have a bucket anyway so so she's really doing this literal application and I don't want to spend too much time on this but I just was struck with this this morning that both with Nicodemus and with the Samaritan woman at the well they're both stuck in this literal listening to what Jesus is saying and so they're missing both the spiritual and metaphorical reality to which he's pointing and I only highlight it because you see this same response back to back in John 3 and John 4 and I think it speaks a word of instruction to our own spiritual journeys there is a time and usually in the beginning particularly if we're younger when we come into the faith when we are discipled primarily from very simple black and white thinking and this is when the rules of religion mean the most to us because the rules of religion become become this concrete boundary that we can see and that we feel safe within those boundaries but jesus is going to contrast that with what it means to encounter the living christ they are not the same way in fact, I think about those the way Paul writes in Galatians where he talks about the law being a schoolmaster until Israel was ready for the coming of Christ. In other words, what I'm saying is at some point before you actually grow and mature, your religion will cease to make sense. God will graciously bring you into circumstance that you, the rules that made sense of your life will no longer answer the questions that you were asking. And it's very disconcerting, it's very nerve-wracking, and I want you to know it is perfectly normal. It's not normal, it is to be encouraged. And one of the worst things that we can do is try to pull people back into simplistic thinking when God's trying to expand their understanding to the larger reality of life in His universe. But those rules have to fail. And so in other words, what I'm saying is, because of our background and our experiences, we might look for life in immorality, and it works for a while because it does make us come alive. And God has put us together so that there are certain experiences of the flesh that are exhilarating. Why in the world we pretend like they're not, I'll never understand. One of the biggest lies my youth minister ever told me was that sin isn't all that fun. Pish posh! Are you nuts, man? It'd be a lot of fun. I think you're doing it wrong if you're not having fun. And in the context, that too is a transmission of the grace of God. But it has limitations. And once I cease to recognize the goodness of God and the pleasures of life or the pleasures of the flesh, then I become enslaved to the experience itself, and then I begin to experience the law of diminishing returns, and pretty soon I am held captive by my passions and my desires. Increasingly pressing into more self-destructive acts with less and less returns of pleasure. 
Till pretty soon, I no longer pursue my sin in order to feel better. I'm just pursuing it in order to stop feeling so bad. And that is where the depression and the despair and the darkness begins to take over. But at the same time, when I pursue that life in my religious experience, at first it is exhilarating. It is powerful to finally know the answer. Where you, and you're still in that place where you don't see Jesus as the answer. You just see him as the dispenser of answers. There's a big difference between following the living Christ as the answer and following a religious Jesus because he pumps out the answers. And at first that works and it's exhilarating because all of a sudden life in the universe figures out it's real simple. You learn the morality. Typically, we're drawn to the morality that's easier for us to follow. Thus, it reinforces our own worth and self-righteousness. And it allows us then to feel superior to those who aren't, who aren't following that morality. And that itself is quite a buzz. It's kind of nice to know you're the one in the room that God likes. And he's really unhappy with everyone else. And lo and behold, the more I pursue that religious uh, uh, vision of God that I begin to create or my community helps me create, a wonderful things happens. I start to realize God hates the same people that I do. Which makes it even better. So now God and I have the same enemies and my friends and we all have the same enemies. And, and instead of being light and salt in the world, we are warriors for Christ that are going to smash down and slaughter those infidels, spiritually speaking. We, of course, would condemn other religions that are outrightly violent in their rhetoric. By all the while, we pursue the same kind of spirituality socially and emotionally with the way we act toward those outside of the group. And so, therefore, just like immorality begins as uh, being a partial answer until it's not, so religion is a partial answer until it's not. Now, many of you, I'm looking around, I see the room, and you double-dipped. You gave yourself to immorality, got burned, found religion. Bounced out of that found, and, and walked in religion. It made sense. It structured your life. Then that failed. And so what we often do is we will, that failed me, bouncing back. Bam, back over here. And I'll go more deeply into my cycle of addiction and indulgence until once again I get burned. And then I say, I repent, Jesus, and I run back to the religious structure and bring all these rules. And they work for a while until they don't. Because Jesus didn't come to offer just condemnation for immorality and participation in religion. Because they're just two sides of the same coin. Now, granted... Don't misunderstand me. I freely acknowledge that the consequences of death in religion feel and look healthier than the consequences of death in immorality. Of course, I can see that. I understand that. And at least religion helps us to like curb that a little bit and not be so blatant with the pain that, and toxicity that we're spreading to others. But, but you better believe we're still spreading pain and toxicity to others in that state as well. The answer is neither immorality, nor religion, but living water. Living water that flows from the living Christ. And where is the locale of this living water? Look what Jesus says in verse 14, my friends. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water 
springing up where? In him for eternal life. Both immorality and religion make their promises in the external. Immorality and religion both work from the outside in to try to bring inward transformation and we come up short. But encountering walking with the living Christ is an understanding of what it actually means to be human in the first place. And it's not external. It cannot get to us through religion or immorality. It has to come from the gracious encounter of the living spirit of the living Christ, who is where, according to Colossians? In you. Christ is in you as the hope of glory. The springs of living water flow up from where? From within you. The kingdom of God is where? It is within you. This is the wisdom Jesus comes to bring, not only to correct immoral living, but also to correct the futility of outward religious living. Because we encounter something alive from within. So the question as we get ready to close and shift to our baptisms that we all want to ask ourselves is not just read this as a cute metaphor and go on with our lives, but ask ourselves. Let's put ourselves in the position of this Samaritan woman listening in, in, in uh, real time to the words of Jesus. And my question is, do you experience life as a well of eternal life springing up from within? Do you? If not, why not? You have to ask yourself these questions. Will you be content for life that is less than Jesus promised? Now, we spoke briefly of this call to action when we ran out of time, and I want to go over it again as we close. If your life is not characterized by joy, peace, and abundance, go on an inner journey and find out why. And I am not going to give you the answers. You've got to find those yourself. How? Experiment a little. Look, if cracking open the one-year Bible, you're in a season that's making you come alive, you should keep doing that. I love having my one-year Bible, but there are times when the Spirit wants me to expand my understanding of the way God's grace gets communicated to you, to me, and all of a sudden, it's laborious to try to sit with that. Now, I'm not saying there's never a time to discipline ourselves and don't listen to our feelings, but there's also time to listen to our feelings. There's also time to respond to the inner lucidity of the Spirit and see what God may be calling you to do. And it might be that you pause reading for a while and you take a walk out doors. I don't know what it is for you. I am just saying you have permission to experiment. Forget the rules and prioritize your individual joy. Because you will always love your neighbor as you love yourself. I'm not talking about self-centered li- living. I'm talking about stewarding your life in, in, the, in, in the call to self-care. So pri- take a moment. Just Look, if you're really nervous about this, just put it on the calendar. You're just going to do it for one month, two months, three months at most. You're going to take that time and you're going to seriously ask yourself what it would look like if I prioritized my joy. Can you recall what brought you joy before the world made you feel shame or foolishness for it? Do you even remember? Maybe it's time to go on a journey through your own history 
with the Holy Spirit as your guide. Reawaken those childlike wonders and passions that you didn't realize at the time were the Holy Spirit speaking to you, forming you and who he intended you to be until someone made you feel foolish or ashamed for it. Ask the Holy Spirit to take you back to the joy of your youth. In fact, all I'm asking you to do is take seriously the words of the gospel. Take seriously the admonition of Jesus. Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called the little child to them and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become. Let's say that together. Change and become. Thank you. Change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. My friends, for the good of your soul and for the sake of the world and for those of us who have been waiting for you to show up so that we can see the unique expression of the glory of God that you're intended to bring, please Begin to prioritize your spiritual health so that you are a healthy soul through which Jesus continues his work on earth. One of the glories of being in community is being in a community group. We were having dinner together this week as a group, eating some fantastic chili that I happened to make. And someone was sharing, and they were talking about when they were going through a difficult time, and they were given a children's book that was about, that was written to communicate God's love to a child. And I was only listening casually because I still had a few fritos that I didn't want to get too soggy. You know, you got to eat those suckers quick. So I was only halfway listening, but then my heart was pierced when I heard her say, I opened it and I read it, and I began to feel like a child. How beautiful. That's it. When was the last time you allowed adoration of Jesus to make you feel like a child? My friends, these moments ought not be exceptions. They ought to be the norm. Because that's what Jesus called us to. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness. And I pray that you would give the mature adults in this room the courage to become children once again. Unearth, Lord, unearth those things buried deep in our soul that were hints, they were windows to the soul, they were windows of heaven, they were opportunities for us to understand who we were intended to be, made in your image, who is the ultimate creator, the art that we were supposed to create with our lives so that others could see a unique expression of the glory of God. Then we were shamed. We were made to feel foolish. We become, became reasonable. I pray for a restoration of the chaos of the Holy Spirit. That raw, creative impulse that draws us into those moments in which our breath is taken away. And we are reminded, I am alive. And there 
are eternal rivers flowing out of my innermost being, flowing from the heart of the living Christ who dwells in my soul. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.